All right, that's enough of that. Welcome back to Lime Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. Today's beautiful episode was with my friend, Alex Benayan. Alex was the youngest venture capitalist at age 19. He's the author of The Third Door, which is a tremendous book I really quite enjoyed. Um, and he's an amazing dude. He's uh, in The Third Door book. Interviews all sorts of interesting folks, ranging from Larry King to Warren Buffett to Maya Angelou to Bill Gates to Pitbull. Pretty cool stuff. Really smart guy. Uh, tremendous storyteller. And this conversation, we get deep into the mechanics of how to effectively tell a story and also kind of get into like more vulnerable vulnerable bits of Alex, which I always greatly appreciate that. Um, thanks so much for checking out the website, alignpodcast.com, A-L-I-G-N podcast.com. On there, you can start the five-day movement challenge, which is five fundamental movements everybody ought to have in their daily existence. And it's simple. It's free. It's right there for you, alignpodcast.com. Uh, thanks for our sponsor, Blue Blocks. We're supporting this podcast. Blue Blocks is the steeziest blue blocking sunglasses you will encounter. Um, they are fantastic. I was just looking at a thing, actually, uh, a documentary, Michael Moore. Uh, what, where will we invade next? Really excellent. Highly recommend that. And that talks about, I think it was maybe Finland, Norway. They're not allowed to say best with products. They just don't do it. Uh, I think it's, it's an interesting thing that we do in the United States. Everybody's the best, and then therefore it's kind of just saturates the whole thing. That word loses its value. Anyways, um, that aside, I think Blue Blocks is the goddamn best blue blocking glasses. I'm just joking. I think they're really good. Um, really steezy, really cool. Um, and they protect that sweet, sweet circadian rhythm of yours. Uh, reducing the cortisol release that you get blasted with every time you're exposed to blue light. Ideally from the sun. Uh, once the sun goes down, you want to go more into that melatonin territory. You want to go more into that down regulation. Calm, rest, digest, repair. And you staring into your light bulbs ever since god dang Edison. Tesla before that um, produced those little mofos that has been thrown off our whole physiology. So these blue blocking glasses can help support your physiology and make you look more fantastic at the same time. Uh, jump on to blue blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com slash align for 15% off of your purchase. B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com slash align. 15% off. Highly recommend them. Save your sleep. Make you look wicked smart. I think we're good. Here we go. Back to the show with Alex Benayan. Enjoy. Pow. Align Podcast. Throw this little mofo on here. All right. So you got to learn about the recurring challenges that I kind of experience in my mind. <laughs> Where do you stand on that question? I think people listening to this don't give a shit about my mind at this point. I've already purged. I'm well purged. Funny question to just. Well, you you seemed open enough to to answer. What did I ask you like five minutes ago? I was like something along the lines of like, what are you what do you struggle with? Was exactly what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I've never said that to someone like straight up like that. Really? That's so funny. It's such a consistent question with me. I, I ask people? people all the time. Well, you have to if you're especially if you're doing a one on one with someone. Yeah. 
Well, even even in but podcast socially? land, podcast land, socially, all that stuff. Because I I would much rather cut through the facade and yeah. cut through like all those those rote layers that are on repeat. Yeah, like all that just feels like a waste of time. Okay, what do I what do I struggle <laughs> with, dude? So much. I can spend the next like five hours going. <laughs> There's in, it's interesting. I just had a thought just now. You know, there's a difference between chronic struggle and like acute struggle, mm. like something that like is a consistent thing that I'm you know working on versus uh, you know something that might come up in the moment. Um, yeah, I'll go straight into insecurities. Yeah, of course. Uh, something that started since like childhood. You know, body image stuff as a kid. I was like definitely overweight as a kid. So like getting teased as a kid and. Um, unraveling those stories is definitely a work in progress for me. Yeah. Um, you know, achievement and being enough, definitely, you know, work in progress and unraveling that. Um, what's cool is like the pro, you know, I'm getting better at it. Um, but also cutting myself slack is very, very important. Yeah. Um, where do you think that came from? The, feeling, why would you being feel, a human being? Yeah. Um, being a human being, I mean, for the most part, but also uh, family. You know, every family has a different culture. Even if you're, you know, from a specific culture, every family has its own unique culture. My family was definitely a uh, achievement, was a measurable thing that was applauded or looked down upon, depending on where you landed on the spectrum. Uh, body weight was a huge thing. That was achievement. Uh, and you can see the effects that it's had on people. Yeah. Uh, whether it's do you my feel family like, or yeah. Do you feel like in part the the uh, a part of the reason that you've been so successful in this world is a is a product of kind of like compensations would be a, a commonly used word, but is there any kind of like like I experience a lot of or I have experienced a lot of like void feeling kind of the sensation of like, if I achieve this, if I do that, you know, then I will finally feel enough. Yeah, you know, I just got back from a Tony Robbins event. So the whole thing is like, am I enough? And will I be loved? Am I enough? Will I be loved? Like that's the common consistent theme with most people. And that's the reason that we do all the things. That's why I get the car. That's why I get the clothes. That's why I do all the stuff that I do. Mm. Was there any of that with you or not so much? Or did you feel of more course, just, of course, of course. Um, I think people who think there's none of that are not, self-aware yeah um i even think you know some of the most you know some of the more enlightened people on earth you know still have it to a degree i think the quest is to try to become aware of it enough so it can you know relax its grip but i don't think it fully disappears yeah um i definitely wasn't hyper aware of it in the beginning all you're sort of like you know when you're young you know i started the third door when i was 18 years old so when you're young you're really going off impulse right and just, you know, like an, you know, animal instinct, you know, you feel pain, so you run, you feel pain, so you fight, you feel pain, pain, so you run away, you know. Um, and when I had started the third door, I knew the short answer is yes, which is that. There's the reasons I wrote the book that I was conscious of when I started but it was a seven-year journey, and there was a lot of growing up and, you know, growth and awareness that 
transformed over the seven years, and I definitely have much more insight into why I wrote the book now than I can't. You know, hindsight is, there's a great quote by Warren Buffett. He says, uh, life is always much more clear, you know, looking through the uh, rear view mirror. Right. But that's not how you drive. Yeah. You know, things are much clearer looking through the rear view mirror, you know, in hindsight, but that's not how you live. So what was the reason of writing the book seven years ago? And then in retrospect, what's the rear view mirror look like? At the time, okay, so I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. And I was going through this, what do I want to do with my life crisis? And I don't know if you've gone through it, but like, it's all consuming, right? It's only in the last maybe year that I really feel like, okay, I'm on like a path. Yeah. Always before there was just all these damn potentials and directions and, you know, just hacking weeds down and blazing trails and trying to figure out just feeling pretty fucking lost. Yeah. And I think the first time I ever felt that was freshman year of college. Cause before that you have to understand, you know, I'm the son of Persian Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means, you know, I came out of the womb my mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and just sent me on my way. And, you know, in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween. In high school, you know, I checked all the boxes. I took all the biology classes, uh, you know, studied for the SATs. I went to pre-med summer camp. So by the time I got to college, I'm the pre-med of pre-meds. And very quickly, I found myself on my dorm room bed looking at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they were sucking the life out of me. And at first I figured I was just being lazy, but eventually I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Yeah. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. That was the first time those questions even started. And it's because I had space. I lived with my family my entire life. And like college was the first time I was able to decide like what time dinner is or, you know, even stuff as basic as that. And when you have space, you actually start to, Ask yourself questions. And, you know, that threw me into the abyss of like, you know, what am I, you know, what do I want to do with my life if it's not this path that I've been on my whole life? And on top of that, the question started to evolve into, okay, fine, maybe I don't know what I want to do, but at least I knew I had some interests. And it made me start wondering, like, you know, how did Bill Gates, when he was, you know, in the same place I was, when he was this random college kid, how did he sell software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? Or how did Spielberg become the youngest director in Hollywood history without a single hit under his belt? You know, this is what they don't teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be a book with the answers. So I went to the library and I just started ripping through, you know, business books and biographies, assuming there had to be a book with the answer. And eventually I was left empty handed. So that's when my naive 18 year old thinking kicked in. I thought, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading. Why not write it myself? You know, I thought I'd just, you know, call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else, and I'll be done in a few months. That, I assumed, would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund the journey. I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before finals, I was in the library doing what everyone does in the library right before finals. I was on Facebook and I see someone offering free tickets to the prices, right? And I was going to school right here in LA, you know, not too far from where the show films. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show? 
and win some money to fund the book. You know, not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. So I told myself it was a dumb idea and to not think about it, but I don't know if you've had these moments where an idea just keeps clawing itself back into your mind. Regularly. Yeah. So to, <laughs> and you sort of have to, you have to address it or else it's just going to like own your mental real estate, right? So I think of those ideas as being gifts. <clears throat> you know, it's like a, I've heard like it, those ideas are kind of like they come from somewhere. They come from the ether and they kind of come down and they grant you the opportunity to take it if you wish. And if you choose not, then it it pops over to somebody else. And like, that mofo's got my idea. It's like, well, it was your idea. You gave it up. Yeah. <laughs> you and chose to. Yeah, and they just claw at you, no matter how you know preposterous they sound. And eventually, do you think they stop clawing? If you if the, do you think they just, stop believing? Ah. Uh, you know, like you almost become scarred to those ideas penetrating. If no, you if no, you turn no, them no, down I, repeatedly, I don't, think, I don't think it's you become scarred. I think you become uh, desensitized. Or you become much better at suppressing. Yeah, callous was the word I was. I was. Yeah, I, was I was looking for it. My sense card. Yeah, I. I don't think the idea stop. I think you just uh, stop listening altogether. You just like turn off that frequency. And then when you turn the frequency on, it kind of exponentially starts cranking up. Yeah, is my, is yeah. My experience you talk to with you know musicians are a great example of that. You know, you might like love music as a kid and have like ideas for songs and stuff but as soon as you become a professional songwriter all of a sudden they start like coming more and more and more and more and more, and more. yeah yeah once you like turn that and then you like go on tour and you're not writing for a while and then they just like start and then you like you're off tour and you start writing and they start building back up i think it's it's almost like the difference of changing the direction of your of your kayak if you're in a river like for you going the md route you're like you're just fucking clawing up the river and go and go and then eventually something you maybe hit a bump or something happens somebody catches your attention you turn a little bit now we're kind of sideways eventually you can get to a point where you're like okay i'm just gonna go with the flow with it and then i think oftentimes those ideas start becoming more natural yeah with a lot of people people's experience yeah and that's sort of what i was in that point but i didn't even know i was in that point yeah. I was just sort of like going off of, and you know, back in that moment in the library, you know, two nights before finals, yeah. I just sort of like felt this pull and, uh, you know, to prove to myself it was a bad idea. I remember, you know, opening up my spiral notebook and writing, you know, best and worst case scenarios, you know, to prove to my, myself that going on the prices right is like a horrible idea. And I remember writing, you know, worst case scenarios, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, you know. Mom stops talking to me. No, mom kills me. You know, there's like 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it was almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. Mm. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. And from there, that's sort of what set the journey off. You know, it took two years to track down Bill Gates. It took three years to track down Lady Gaga. And that's sort of the genesis of what led to the whole third door journey. Hmm. Something that's popped up with me upon studying you is it seems as though in your history you've had like this delusional self-belief. <laughs> you know whereas a lot of people would be like be like no let's like get realistic it seems like consistently your pattern has almost been to live delusionally 
but it's worked out for you because it's like you're outside of that box. Yeah, but what the fuck is delusion, man? Exactly. You well, know, common like, norms so messed relative. up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's like delusional for one person is not delusional for another person. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> I don't, dude, I don't know. Well, it's like the Frank Zappa quote we were looking at before this. I don't right. remember how it goes. Yeah, what yeah. is it? The breaking out of the norm. How, how does it go? It's in. It's the uh, first quote of, breaking, of my book. Breaking out of the. <laughs> Uh, breaking out of the norm is the only path to progress. Something along those lines. Something like that. Yeah, you need to break the norm. You need to be a heretic in order to find God. Yeah, and you know, I don't even know, like, what I do know is that every decision that's changed the course of my life in a significant way has been just like that moment in the library when I'm looking at 20 good reasons not to do it. Yeah. Yet there's still something in me that tells me to do it anyways. Um, every moment... Every mo- I can just tell you right now, if I look like just mentally think back to like the major moments in my life, it's because there were like 20 reasons not to do something, yet still something within me was telling me, you know, to just take one step forward anyway. That's made all the difference. Yeah. How does a person transition safely? You know, like we like kind of like the cavalier sayings like you got to you know burn the boats if you want to take the island and all that yeah, stuff yeah. but like sometimes you have a kid at home and sometimes you have a wife and sometimes you have like you have dude, shit that you need dude, to sort out you're you're working two jobs that'll pay for your mom's cancer treatment it's you know yeah. shit gets so, rough so man. there could be times where upon burning that boat it could be the difference between your mom not getting her medicine or your kid not getting you know whatever yeah. and so it's it's nice to live in this this world where it's like burn the boats charge follow the dream and then there's also like a lot of real people in the world that are like well well that will be me destroying these other people at the same time for six years while i follow my dream yeah so what does that look like for some of those i have a lot of empathy for that man like it's really easy for people to just say you know just keep going just you know push through it you know Reality's a lot tougher, you know. <laughs> um, I know when my when my dad had pancreatic cancer. Dude, that was not the year that I was running around the world, you know, chasing my dreams. You know, even when I would take some, you know, trips for work, you know, because I was still writing the third door. They weren't, like, fucking fun. You know, I wasn't, like, you know. And if I was enjoying myself, I was, like, you know, trying to come back to L.A. as quickly as possible so I could spend time with him. Yeah. Um, There was fear the entire trip that something would happen to him while I'm gone. And that's because I was lucky enough to even have resources to go. You know, so I'm, I'm super aware that, you know, for the majority of people, life is a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of respect for people. At the same time. Um, there have just been tremendous stories, you know, throughout my seven years of research and interviews where, you know, there's this one story of a man named Chi Lu who grew up in a village outside of Shanghai, China. No running water, no electricity. You know, people walked around with deformities in his village because of malnutrition. And... He just, you know, worked his ass off and, you know, was really smart. And by age 27, was making the most money he's ever made in his life. $7 a month. And you have to understand, six of those dollars were just to live. And that one extra dollar went back to his parents in the village. And fast forward 20 years later, 
he's a president at Microsoft. You know, one of the most insane stories you've ever heard. Hmm. And what's amazing about these stories is they're not recipes, but they are proof of what's possible. And there are things you can take from them and put them into your own life to make your own path possible. Um, so again, I have a lot of empathy for everyone's struggle. And everyone's struggle is super different, man. I'm not going to pretend like I you know, know what people are going through. What I also know is that you know, there's story after story and example after example of, you know, no matter the obstacles, no matter the challenges, there's always a way. Mm -hmm. I hope you take the delusional self-belief as an extreme compliment. Giant compliment. Yeah, that's, yeah. How, I, that's how I meant it. <laughs> because I think like that's the, the, the kind of hang up that we have is we get indoctrinated or enculturated in this limited belief system since we're little kids. You know, and then to be able to break out of that and like come out of like, I was listening to, I did an interview recently with Paul Cech and we were talking about, you know, we start like the Abrahamic religions kind of keeps you in this like child role and then there's the father, you know? And so throughout that, it's like, okay, I'm a sinner and you know, the, the father and I'm following the father. And I, I get that. I think it's beautiful and great. Um, but I think there's also a place where we can go come, come to the point. It's like, what, to, at what point do I kind of grow up and kind of, start to form my, create my own reality, you know, yeah. and as opposed to going based off of the rules that I've been given at some point, somebody had to create those fucking rules. <laughs> they didn't just, they weren't just birthed from like the big bang. Like there was a dude that created some rules and now we're living underneath those and we live within that. And typically it's for someone else that has more, you know, influence or money or power or whatever it is. And they kind of form the world in such a way to continue working to drive that train. And we're, many of us are cogs within that. And so at some point, I think it's really interesting when you find people that are just like, screw that. <laughs> you know, I'm just create my own rules. <laughs> it's a really valuable thing. Is that something you always had? Hmm. I got in trouble a lot in school. Yeah. Like a lot. Uh, which was always this tension with me and the teachers because like I would do well academically, but it'll be like the biggest pain ever for them. So it's like, you know, there's, yeah, I'd be sent to the principal a lot, but also like I would do really well. Yeah. So it was like this, it was this, I guess it's sort of like where I'm at in life right now too. It's getting in a lot of trouble, but still, you know. Is that something that could be cultivated, crafted for somebody? Or is that like some I innate? I think about that a lot, man. And it's not like I grew up like in an anarchist household, man. I grew up with like extreme rules, like the strictest, strictest rules. <laughs> so it's like it makes me wonder like what – it's funny. I have another friend. Um, he's, you know, like the main mentor in the book. His name is Elliot Bisno. Mm. And, you know, he has a very similar personality to me, but he also grew up in a fairly, you know, structured household. Um I don't know, man. I don't know. You got to talk to like a child psychologist. Like, <laughs> I I've like thought about it, of course, but yeah. yeah, I don't have a strong answer. What I do oh, know, right. what I do know is that, you know, if you just look at the people who, you know, I interviewed and researched in the third door as like a, 
interesting cross section of industries, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you have Bill Gates for business, you have Maya Angelou for poetry, you know, you have Steve Wozniak for computer science, Quincy Jones for music. You know, they all their backgrounds could not be more different. And that's been one of the things that's been most surprising to me. It's like, you know, Quincy Jones grew up eating, you know, rat rats for dinner. Like, grew up that poor. Mm. Um, you know, Bill Gates grew up in a fairly wealthy household in Seattle. His dad was a very respected lawyer. Warren Buffett's father was a congressman. Maya Angelou was sent on a train to Stamps, Arkansas with, like, her name, you know, attached to her ankle. Mm. It, could not come from more different backgrounds. What is interesting, though, is no matter how different the backgrounds are, no matter how different the resources, the circumstances are, at some point in their life, it could be in their teenage years, or it could be later in life, Maya Angelou wrote, I know why the Cageworth sings in her 40s. At some point in their life, they do choose to adopt a particular mindset and what I realize is that every single one of these people treats life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. So there's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. You know, that's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You're the wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen, there's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal, they all took the third door. So... That's not only the title and the thesis of the book. That's really the energy I'm trying to inject into the ne- next generation because, you know, that's also what changed my life the most on this journey. Where did you learn to tell stories? Mm. It's funny. My mom and my grandma have this, like, anecdote they always share. I don't remember because I was, like, three years old. But I apparently – I don't remember, but I couldn't speak – I think normally kids start talking at like one or two or something like that. By even at like three, I wasn't able to like put words together well. Hmm. Um, so I think we took like a family trip to like Disneyland once and like I saw like this goofy play or show and I like went back to my grandma to, again, I don't remember this. This is like my grandma's story. But she's like, you know, I came back and like wanted to tell her what I saw, but I couldn't speak. So apparently I like acted out the whole thing. And, you know, the joke yep. in the family is like, you know, Alex, you know, to this day is making up for lost time. <laughs> so I couldn't, you know, couldn't talk for a while. But what that, you know, I guess what I take from that story is I almost had this like instinct to, you know, want to, you know, share and communicate things. Yeah. Um, so there's the instinct and the inclination. And. Also, you know, as I started writing The Third Door, I started meeting some people who were just like some of the greatest storytellers I'd ever seen. And What are some of the qualities that stand out for people to tell better stories? Because if you can't create that emotional content, that visceral, yeah. visceral sensation, then you, you won't really have people. Yeah, so I definitely, I do this a lot too. Like I do, you know, corporate keynotes literally on the topic of storytelling yeah. and the dynamics of it. 
Um, but a really simple thing, you know, just one sentence that actually can help bring some clarity to someone is that what happened to you is not the story. That's just the facts of what happened. Yeah. Some people choose to make it into stories. So a story doesn't land in your life. You know, there's like great examples of like people who have had the craziest lives. I'll meet some of the craziest things have happened to them. Their telling of it is not necessarily a story though. A story is a structure that is an emotional, it's like emotional architecture. Mm-hmm that entertains people in a way that moves them to think of something differently. Um, you know, I have a, like me and my friend, uh, Elliot have this joke that like, I, and it actually isn't even a joke. This is like a true thing, which is that I, you know, there's this one time where I had to like write a, I had to do like a silly assignment for like an English class in high school. And the story of me, Doing this like silly, inconsequential English assignment in high school is like one of the best stories. And it's like over the most inconsequential thing. Whereas someone can tell you like this crazy, heartbreaking, harrowing journey they went on. But because it's not packaged in a way that's the human brain comprehends as a story, it doesn't land. Um, And there's this great quote by Aaron Sorkin, you know, the writer of. Uh, the social network in the West Wing, he says, storytelling has rules. If you don't follow the rules, you're just finger painting. And I love that because it's true. Hmm. What are the rules? And it doesn't need to be his rules or anybody's rules. What are are your rules? The basics, if you had to bring it down, if I had to put it even in one word, the word is tension. So I'll give you an example. Um, a young boy finds out he's a wizard and has a great time in wizard school. Not a story. A young boy finds out he's a wizard and the most powerful dark wizard on earth is set on trying to kill him. That's a story. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, there's some conflict and there's some tension and there's some obstacles. Um, hmm. You know, I, I can give you like, you know, th- here's another example, you know, Three buddies go to Las Vegas and have a crazy trip. Not a story. <laughs> Why do I care? It, other than, unless I'm like friends with you and I want to like laugh, it it's, doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Three friends go to Las Vegas with one of their friends getting married the next day and needs to make it to the wedding within 24 hours and they can't find him. All of a sudden, everything matters. Yeah. Because they need to find their friend and take him back for before he misses his wedding. Do you use that in painting your own life? Does that make sense? Uh, I can, re- I can re- reframe it. If, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I just like, uh, I noticed that with myself of just, like, I've heard, what is, what was the quote? Like, you should make your life be an autobiography or, or something like that. That you want to read? That you want to read. You know, so like, you're always, yeah. you're always painting your life you're writing the pages within your life each day yeah it's actually something i struggle with because i almost i overdo it naturally um a big thing is like in my personal life where i like sometimes i'll do something because it like makes the story that i tell myself like more exciting and romantic yeah i did that for years with traveling i call it ego traveling 
yeah, there's like a million different things that you could do to like, because the story sounds cool and like, nah, like I want to do it because I want to do it. Yeah. Um, or even, you know, even if you're, you know, let's say dating and like, I want to make sure that I'm dating the person, not dating the story about how we met, you know? Sure. Um, I, I just love stories so much. I actually have to check myself. Is there any way to differentiate or separate that upon meeting somebody? Because it's almost impossible to not paint the story on somebody else and paint your own wants and needs and beliefs and all that. Uh, yeah, I would hope. <laughs> I'm, sure I'm working on nothing right now. Um, no, I have a friend. Uh, his name is NQ. He's an incredible Yeah, I love NQ. He's uh, great. You know, me and him talk a lot about uh, projecting and... You know, I think awareness into anything just helps. Um, so I'm just trying to bring a lot of awareness into projecting. And, you know, big, you know, theme of the third door was me. You know, I started out, you know, putting Bill Gates on this giant pedestal. And because he's so good at this one thing, you sort of project all these other values upon him, too. Yeah. And that's a big part of the journey. And for me, I've noticed I do that in a lot of areas in my life. So that's where I'm definitely a work in progress. Yeah, I've found, I wonder if you found this, uh, with this podcast, I've done um, close to 300 conversations with people that I find to be inspiring, you being you being one of them. Um, and so in that time, it's been a really beautiful growth phase for me because I got to see more intimately and deeply into these people as opposed to just projecting the story essentially that they are the father, you know, or the mother, the, the higher than. I see them as human beings and, you know, they, they have issues and they have, you know, disbelief in certain aspects of their lives and they have problems with their girlfriend or their w whatever. And you, you get in that, you know, or they drink too much coffee or they have sleeping issues and they have all, it's like, oh, all right. It's been a really beautiful experience for me to get to humanize these human beings. And actually I've almost felt this feeling of like myself growing up in a sense, just because I started to change that narrative of my belief of other people. Did you experience that at all? Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> my answer is yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Was there any standout people with that? You don't need to like shit on Bill Gates or anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> any standout moments that you've had of like, oh, like I think I could probably drum up some of that in my existence, but where you built this narrative up around a person and then came to kind of a, a, a crossroads where you're like, oh, that's not, that story wasn't accurate at all. Uh, well, look, it has nothing to do with who he's, he's as smart or smarter than you would even imagine. Yeah. Bill Gates. Uh, I put him on an impossible pedestal. No one, yeah, I thought course. I would walk into his office. You know, I spent two years from like being eight, from 18 to 20 years old, my entire life's purpose was to try to learn from him directly. And I finally did it. I'm walking into his office. Dude, I like thought like money would rain from the ceiling. Right, of course. Like I just, not consciously, but subconsciously, I definitely thought there would be this like, you know, organs playing or harps playing and hallelujah in the background. And like, uh, you know, no one can perform to that level. But... What's cool is that if you just sit back, and I'm learning this, you know, a little later in my life at this point now. Yeah. And something, it's, again, I'm practicing, I'm a work in progress, but if I sit back 
and just try, it's not easy, but if I try to just be patient with the person, you know, there's this great book, Tao Te Ching, you know, the core of Taoism, the philosophy and religion, where it just talks about if you are patient, and I love it, it says if you're patient with both your friends and your enemies. And yourself. And yourself. If you're, <laughs> if you're patient with your friends and your enemies, they will reveal who they are. Yep. That's so true. Oh my God. I lo- it's, it was so fun reading it. Um, because it's so, I would say it's, I'd, I'd say out of every book I've ever read, um, it's the most concentrated amount of wisdom per word. Yeah. Which makes it very, when people are like, oh, I read it in an hour. I'm like, whoa. Right. You didn't read it. You just looked at the words with your eyeballs, you know? Yeah. To me, you know, reading it is really absorbing it. And it's just so, every page is its own. There's like five mind-blowing thoughts per page yep. each page has maybe like 50 words on it like little poems have you dealt i would think the answer would have to be yes um have you upon doing all this stuff that you've done from such a young age how do you deal with imposter syndrome throughout that or has that not been a thing in my mind my like feeble mind it would have to be because i deal with that just it's just been a, a part of my narrative but I don't want to project my own shit onto you. <laughs> no, you know what's been interesting about me is I, because I started so young, you couldn't, I couldn't even do the imposter syndrome because it was almost like written on my forehead. Right. If you claim it, it's that's yeah. the, that's the move I think for, well, for that's people. A, well, that's a trick for if someone is going through it, claiming it is the trick. Yeah. Uh, Larry King has this great story. You know, I ended up like chasing him through a grocery store and doing the interview and he has this great story of his first day on the radio. You know, his biggest dream is to be on the radio. And his first day, he gets there and he is paralyzed. Like, literally, they point to him. You know, he's live on the air. His big dream is being a, you know, a radio broadcaster. And he's finally a, on the air for the first time and he freezes. Yeah. One of my biggest fears. For, but, like, live. Yeah. On the big, you know, big radio station in Miami. And the, you know, the radio manager's like, just say something. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, this is my first time on the radio, and I am incredibly nervous. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like, the call started coming in from, like, the listeners being like, oh, you're doing a great job. Yeah. And it brought people in on it. I got tingles as you said that. Right? And it brought people in on it. And I think this is actually the first time I'm ever realizing this. When I was 18, it was pretty – you looked at me. You're like, that guy's 18 in the room, you know? Because I didn't look like people physically, you know? I was in a room with 40-year-olds. It was very clear who was – which one does not belong. So it almost – I – almost from a physicality age perspective, went through the same thing Larry King went through, which was that everyone was in on it, which is that this is my first rodeo. Mm-hmm. And then I, there wasn't imposter syndrome because I wasn't pretending that I was like, I couldn't, pre- what am I going to do? Walk into a room with Bill Gates and pretend like I've done this before? <laughs> yeah. right. He knows. He knows <laughs> this is the first time I'm doing this shit. Um he knows. He yeah. knows. Um, right. Even with keynote speaking, you know, I'm 19, going in to do like my first talk at Nike. How did that? They how know did, I'm not. How did that pop up? That first one. Yeah. 
Like uh, what's the what's the the, the how to one on one of of manifesting that in one's life at any age, let alone nineteen? Well, you know, first of all, I love 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 uh, keynote speaking. It's what I spend ninety percent of my time doing now that the book is out. Yeah, you do a good job at it. Thank you. I haven't I actually seen it. any of your your keynote speeches, but I I would know. I did. I saw you do do the thing at Craig and Sarah's right, place. You saw, and, you saw a live one. But yeah. I would I would already know ahead of time. I'm sure it would be it would be good from yeah. watching you. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'd count that as like a small small private event for sure yeah um it wasn't for a corporation but definitely for a organization speaking in front of a group of people yeah. strangers um yeah. i would say you know there's almost like two arenas when it comes to keynote speaking if you're doing it paid or unpaid um which almost have they're almost their own wheelhouse um if you is your question it sounds like how does one get into that less about the mechanics i'd be curious about that too but yeah. how does one how does one pave that path for themselves to get to something that's as grandiose as that especially at mother flipping 19 years old yeah so so that's if you are let's say no credibility forget about 19 whatever yeah, age you are let's exactly. say you have no credibility um, look if you're the ceo of uber you don't need to have extensive keynote speaking experience to like jump in and get a paid giant paid speaking engagement right um, let's assume you don't have that. Don't have which that. Which is where I was. Yeah. Uh, you start in the arena of the unpaid gigs. And uh, you pitch yourself to organizers that have no budget and need speakers. And you just, you know, you're sort of like clawing your way even into the unpaid gigs. And you just start. And then the key and, you know, current 2019 world is hopefully you're good but the reality is you're probably not that good but you get better but you want to you know this is like the inside baseball mechanics of it you know you want to videotape those talks mm. have them live on your website and the thing about a keynote speaker i was listening to, I, I, i'm you know i love jerry seinfeld i'm obsessed with yeah him. he's great and he said this great thing yesterday i was listening to a very old interviews of his yesterday and he said he's like the funny thing about comedians is anyone can just say, today, I'm going to start being a comedian. Yeah. And you show up to a club to like an open mic night, and they say, up next, comedian Alex Benat. You know, they just, there's no certification. Right. There's no school. You just claim that you are. And then they introduce you as one. It's sort of imagine like being like a surgeon and just showing up at the hospital and be like, all right, today I feel like it's it's go time. And they just hand you the scalpel and they say, keep cutting until the guy feels better. Right. Like that's what a comedian is. You sort of like don't really know what you're doing. You go up there and you just keep saying things until people laugh. Yeah. Uh, and a corporate keynote speaker is like, for actually forget about corporate, just a, a speaker in general. If you're doing the unpaid gigs, it's very similar to a comedian which is a comedian, you start out being unpaid and you get to a club and try to be good enough that finally someone in that audience, either live, but thank God it's 2019, you can now videotape it and now the audience is the world, if you you know market it online, think it's good enough that they want to pay you for it. Yeah. Um, I think that, I don't, who said it? I think, I don't know if it was, again, Jerry Seinfeld or Steve Martin that said, no, I think, no, it's definitely Jerry Seinfeld. He said, the hard part, you know, people think the hard part is, you know, getting discovered or having the break. No. The hard part is being good enough 
to get discovered and have the break. Yeah. The bar is much higher than I think, at least than I understood in the beginning. So were there any low points with that, with getting to the point of, of good enough? For speaking specifically? Yeah. Did you bomb? I, uh, Freeze? Shit your pants? Pee yourself? Stub your toe? I sort of wish I had like a really <laughs> funny story. I've been lucky with Kino. I've been really lucky in the sense that like not only do I have, you know, some natural instincts that are helpful. Um, I also just practice really, really hard. Yeah. Um, What's the practice look like? In the beginning, it's literally doing that speech dozens of times before you step onto that stage. Bullet points, word for word. In the beginning, it has to be word for word. Really? It, oh, that would destroy me. <laughs> it, it ha- well, this is the thing. Or it has to be bullet points that you've practiced you know so many times that your practice is essentially word for word. Right. Dude, if you're like, you don't want to be rolling the dice up on that stage, you know? Right. You want to make sure whatever you have up is honed and polished and tight. Yeah. Um, because only when it's honed, polished, and tight and it's your best you can possibly give, it's still not going to be the best in the world. So then you take the feedback from that live performance and you do it better next time. And in the beginning, the speeches are few and far between when you're just starting out. So you really can practice in between and then you go up on the stage and you do your best and then you you know think about how you could have done better and then you practice, 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 practice then you have your next one. Uh, I'm at the point in my career now where I'm doing like, just in the past year, 100 live in front of a giant audience speeches. So... You're not really, you know, doing one speech, going home, practicing for a week. Right. Each one is essentially the iter- You know, I'll do some keynote speeches for corporations. I'll do maybe three or four in one week. The speech is different on Monday than on Friday. I'll just tweet. Maybe the audiences might not know, but I know. Yeah. Oh, I had that extra. I hit that line harder on Friday than I did on Monday. Are you reading the audience the whole time? And what does that look like? Or not? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, the whole time. How do you do that? You are so comfortable with your speech. I can give my keynote speech blindfolded with a gun to my head. Yeah. Which allows me to use part of my brain to read the audience. Yeah. If you are so terrified of giving your speech or so unprepared, you have to use your entire brain just to remember the words. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's almost like a, if, if an actor or an actress you know, goes onto a movie set Steps, you know, steps in front of the camera, and they're struggling to remember the lines. They have no ability to actually be in the moment and look at the other, you know, their scene partner and see, and you know, bounce off them because they're just struggling to remember their lines. Yeah. Um, so to me, I'm really obsessed with whatever your craft is. Whether it's writing, whether it's speaking, whether it's entrepreneurship, whether it's just doing your job, whatever your job is or your calling with care and admiration. And, you know, there's something when I interviewed Maya Angelou, she shared with me, become so, she said, be so familiar with your craft that it cultivates an admiration for those who came before you. Hmm. And I love that because what happens is when you become so familiar with your craft and you have a deep, deep, profound respect for those who came before you. 
when it's your turn to step onto that stage, you'll give it the respect that craft deserves. Hmm. And that's how you do your best. I heard recently the St. Mark Cathedral in Venice took something like 500 years to paint the, the ceiling. I thought that was just such an interesting kind of metaphor or analogy for like like your book or like I'm you know I was thinking of it selfishly with my own book of like everything yeah. that's that's in this but you know so you're the guest so with your book everything that's within that is it's not you <laughs> you know it's like it's not even 500 years it's like you know much longer than that you know but I think when we try to claim it's it's me it immediately puts you into imposter syndrome mode it could not because it's a lie <laughs> <laughs> you know, the second that you give it out to everybody else, you know, and if I, I would imagine, you know, with speaking to an audience, give it to the audience because they're co-creating that experience with you. You know, the second that we're like, poof, we're all in this together. The moment that happens, then you're being honest finally. <laughs> yeah, like I'm, like I'm funny when it comes to like speaking and actually I've never talked about this out loud, but it's like part of my process that just happens naturally it wasn't conscious it just has happened over the years especially this past year because when you're doing like a hundred gigs in a year you need things to make it feel different and special each time yeah um so when i go into the audience you know when i'm doing my speech or even doing q a um when i'm like telling my stories i'm looking at the eyes of all the audience members and some people think it's like because i'm trying to like really make this you know profound dramatic effect I'm also looking for who are my friends in here. Not like little yeah. friends I've met. Obviously, I don't know anyone in the audience, but I mean like who's like my like soul, you know. It's amazing how you can feel that. Yeah. You would never I'm, think it when is. When I'm giving a speech and I'm telling a story, I can see like, oh, oh, that. They're in it. That lady with the white hair in the third row. Oh, she's vibing. Oh, yeah, cool. she's there. So, that, so, <laughs> this, so what I'll do is I'll just start like, I'll like go, you know, look at other sides. And I'll go back to her. And she'll like key is she'll be smiling even more the second time I come back to her and the third time. And then I realize like, oh wow, now the whole group of people sitting around are vibing a bit more. Yeah. And then like by forty percent into my speed, I'm almost like winning over one by one. And what's cool about that is you would think that that only works in maybe a group of like a hundred people. You know, you have an hour, you can sort of like make eye contact with each one. Dude, it works with like five thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. Five thousand people. I just treat it as I'm still one after, no, you know, I'm just like winning each person over. And by the end, you know, there'll always be a point like 70 per 60% into a speech where it just hits that climax in the whole group. It doesn't matter if it's 5,000 people or five people. It's like you can hear a pin drop. Mm -hmm. you know, the whole room is like leaning forward and it's like the coolest experience ever. Yeah. How do you use, how do you change your own, so I'm, I'm all an error by Tony Robbins stuff because I literally just got back from the, the UPW three and a half day thing like a week ago. Um, so some of the language that he uses, which he's one of the most tremendous artists slash scientists in. I have a question. Did he address any of the stuff that's happened in the past few months? Uh, no, 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 not at no, all. Not but I'm not. familiar with the stuff. Not, didn't address it at all. Mm. Didn't even bring it up? No. Wow, he fascinating. Didn't bring, he didn't bring it up. Yeah. Okay, anyways, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think of that stuff? Um, there's some things that I read that were appalling. Um, I didn't read any of the specific stories. I just. I always look into specific stories because you can't yeah. really trust the headlines, man. <laughs> the headlines are trying to get your attention. They're not telling you the real stuff. I always read. If I'm going to read it, I'm going to read it. If I'm not going to read it, I'm not going to read it. Yeah. 
Uh, because if someone asks you, what do you think, and you only read, like, the first, like, paragraph, I don't want to be bullshitting it. I either want to read the whole thing or I'm not going to read it. Yeah, I look at it as, like, if a person, within anything, I think at any time, you, you can do that with your day. You can walk out into the world and determine why the world is an evil, selfish, greedy, loud, scary, tumultuous place. And you can walk out and see why it's bright and beautiful and open and expansive and light. And I think that you can do that with people as well. And when you come to a point of like a, you know, someone that's influences many people as, as, uh, Tony, for example, yeah, I think he's done a lot of good for the world too. Yeah. There's a, yeah, but I don't know any of the, the specific details, but, but within, with yeah, I think it just what's happening in our society is we've had a very two dimensional society for the most part Yeah, where, you know, the real lives we never knew anything about. Right. Like no one fucking knows what Oprah does like in her house. No, one, I don't know. And like, I think we get really shocked when people that we have put on to these pedestals. Well, I think the Oprahs and the Tonys of the world will die off and the present people that we follow or the people that we see in their under, we always see them in their underpants and their kitchen making coffee, like (laughs) go on a story and they've got, you know, a million followers or whatever. Dude, dude, even (laughs) that's fucking like, that's, that is engineered three dimensionality. You know, that's the same shit. Uh, it depends on the person. It depends on the person. It I think there's the a person. I think there's a way to 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 be honest in it. I, yeah, but you but but you don't know who's who. Yeah, but I think if you're a sensitive person, you can see it. Yeah, when I'm looking at social media, I I just go with a blanket assumption that this is everyone's highlight reel. That's typically true. And, <laughs> and typically, is it like nine nine point nine percent wrong when I if I get to meet them in person? Yeah. That's that's how I approach it. Yeah. Because God forbid you approach it from the other way, which is that this is the real lives, and then you just feel really shitty about your life. What I see is interesting is now I think it's kind of like in, it's like the Vogue thing to be doing of, of you like to be radically honest and radically empathetic and radically open and all that stuff, and you can see this. There's it's still a mask. Like the person's putting this mask of like deep open. And I'm I'm like forcing a cry, you know. And it's like it's yeah, it still can be like a game out after a while. Yeah, yeah. Behind behind yeah. that, like that's that's the most interesting thing that that I look for as a person that's just just doesn't have any layers. The worst layer in my experience is the spiritual layer, is the radically honest, radically spiritual, radical, radically all that stuff. Um, I would much rather a person just be radically greedy and pro money and fake plastic surgery or whatever but honest about it and the person that's yeah, <laughs> actually lucky, those yeah. things that wears beads and does all this I, stuff this, uh, <laughs> this woman who I'm friends with she's super smart she said something great to me once years ago she's like you know I'd rather do business with someone who up front goes look during contract negotiations I can be unnecessarily aggressive sometimes before deadline I can become unresponsive uh, if I'm having a bad day, sometimes I can lash out, like, and just <laughs> right. put all these horrible <laughs> things on the table, and be like, "But look, this is, you know, this is the way I roll." And like, if you're down to do work together, let's do it. If not, no worries. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh man, that's interesting." Versus like someone, and dude, I'll do this. You know, you want to do a deal with them so bad, you just put your best, you know, face forward, and then, and then, God forbid, they also do the same thing. So you're like the you know, these projections of yourself meeting and then it sort of like all fizzles out. 
Yeah. It's like these honeymoon phases. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. So how do you, is there any, any tips that you have with where that was going with the Tony Robbins thing in the, in the first place was um, changing your state, changing your physiology. That's something that I've also witnessed with you that you do a really good job of is putting yourself into a specific state to invoke an emotion within yourself, which mm. then immediately grabs that visceral sensation with other people. Huh, in what ways? Mm, what you you change your facial expressions, you change your tonality, you change the pacing of your language, you change oh, your cool. postural patterns. You're really good with, with, with being present within that, which can be a slippery thing because when a person's really smart, they can kind of go down like sociopath, psychopath world. I'm not putting that on you at yeah, all, yeah, but yeah. we can learn how to be human really effectively uh, and, yeah. and call upon that at any time. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, I think you do that in a real way, but you also, it seems like you have maybe accidentally studied, maybe you had to be sensitive growing up or something. I imagine you, you would have had to have, yeah. um, but you understand the mechanics of that, it seems. Thanks. I see, especially when it comes to, you know, keynote speaking, I see more, I see it as like almost like a cross between like the art form is very similar to stand-up comedy, yeah. the preparation uh, on game day is actually much more similar to athletics. So the different, you know, when you're creating your craft, it's similar to stand-up comedy in the sense that, like, you're just going on stage, you're honing it, you're honing it, you're honing it. The content of the speech, you're, like, crafting it with the attention of detail as a, you know, as a comic. But on game day, the difference between a keynote speaker and a stand-up comedian, you are not, you know, a stand-up comedian is going on at 11 p.m. in a cellar of a comedy club. Corporate keynote speakers like 9 a.m. IBM's like world, you know, annual meeting. Like different audience, different vibe, different uh, expectations. Hmm. And to me, that's actually you show up to a corporate event like an athlete. Where like you are not missing a fucking beat, you know. You're just not missing a beat and you uh, physically, mentally, emotionally are... You're just there. I would think the process of catching an audience would be very similar between the midnight stand-up comic and the 9 a.m. corporate gig, no? But, but yeah, but that's the process of the performance. Yeah. That's the like on-stage thing where you're reading energy. Yeah, exactly. You're reading it and you're managing energy too. You know, if someone in the audience is like, oh, I love like – if I go on an event and like someone's on the phone, like I love uh, the challenge of like – I, I'm never, I never, ever, ever, I, I've seen some performers, you know, call some, I would never do that. You never want to make some of the audience feel bad. Yeah. I love to like pull them in though. Right. Like it's like such a, you know, rewarding thing to see them like put their phone away and lean in. Hmm. Just because your performance, you know, was just tweaked to. So how would you in. do that? Like that specifically? Yeah. That uh, specific instance. Yeah, Sel you, Selma in the middle is being a jerk off on Instagram or whatever. Yeah. You, you <laughs> actually give the speech for them. <laughs> The reason they're doing that is because they're not uh, they're not present in the room. Hmm. I literally will like speak to the person who's on the phone, hmm. and not in a not in a pushing not in a punishing way, in like giving them like extra. It's sort of like all right, you have a classroom of kids. One of the kids is acting out. You have two choices: you either reprimand that kid, or you give that kid like extra thoughtful attention to make him or her feel good yeah. because why else are they acting out you know right dude for an audience they're on their phone because what's in the room is not as important as what's on the phone how would you isolate so make, them how would you isolate your your attention or their attention to you how would you like create that 
that that connection. It just works, man. When you're there, like it's just, it works. You can I don't know. You've been in an audience, you know, yeah. hundreds, thousands of times. You know, you know when the speaker's talking to you. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it's like really awkward. Like they're like literally being like, and that, and they're just giving you their, you know, their attention and their energy, hmm. and you feel it. Cool. How do people learn more about the? About you, we gotta wrap this wrap this bitch up. Um, <laughs> Where should people go? Yeah, if you grab the third door, obviously. If you, yeah, if you, <laughs> if you end up, this is my thing. Uh, if you heard about the third, I love hearing from people that they heard the third, like where they heard it. Like if you heard it here on this podcast, definitely. And of course, you know the third door is everywhere you like to buy books. So whether it's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or a bookstore, um, Audible, people have been loving a lot. If you heard it here, definitely let me know. Um, you know, hit me up on Instagram and I would love to say thank you. Cool. Uh, what is your Instagram? What is your it's website? Just, what's the place easy. where you get one place? at Alex Benayan. Instagram, Twitter, just at A-L-E-X-B-A-N-A-Y-A-N. Dope. Thank you, brother. Dude, thank you, man. I appreciate awesome. it. Yeah, I appreciate the conversation. All right, people, over now. Pow, Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I want to present y'all with a fun opportunity of starting a program that I created called the Align Method Online Program that focuses on unwinding the unsightly patterns of staring into technology, essentially. So forward head posture, roll forward shoulders, hyperkyphotic spine, disengage glutes, knees collapsing in. If there's collapse in any level in the body, it will trickle up and down through the rest of the system. And that program focuses on unwinding those things, giving you self-care practices, movement practices, and lifestyle adjustments, very subtle ones, that will give y'all more flexibility, more strength, more confidence, more energy, all the good things. Um, and you can start the first week absolutely free and just go to alignpodcast.com slash method, A-L-I-G-N method. Along with that guy, you will receive the Align Band, which is a heavy-duty resistance band with a door anchor. And that also comes with its own online program that is free with that thing. Go to alignband.com and start that program for free. Um, I think that's it. I so greatly appreciate you guys listening to this conversation. I so greatly appreciate reviews on iTunes, sharing uh, on the Instagrams or the Facebooks or wherever you do your shares. Uh, this program goes on lives on because of y'all so um it doesn't go unnoticed thank you for listening thank you for views thanks for joining your life enjoy